Thank you so much, everybody, the choir, the orchestra, the tech team, would you give them all another big hand, let them know how much you appreciate them. And it is true, I'm just back from vacation, I had a wonderful time. Uh, our son, daughter-in-law, two grandbabies uh, did fly down to be with us the entire week, and it was a wonderful time. I had really not planned, believe it or not, to share a grandchild story, but since Dan is obviously asking for one, I don't want to disappoint you guys. Uh, it was, and it's true. I, I told Pastor Dan uh, prior to uh, the services tonight, I just said, I have seen more kids' movies this week than I have seen in my entire lifetime. And, uh, you know, not a normal kind, it's just cartoons. And, and so I'm like, okay, I think those are over. And then I remember that I promised Kinley, who's three, she'll be four in September, that I would take her to a movie tomorrow. So. I'll do that. And I, it reminded me that the last time I took her to a movie, I'd taken her lunch just prior to then, and then her and I, just sort of a Paul Paul Kenley time, we went to the movie, and because we had just eaten lunch, I had not even thought about candy or popcorn, didn't even mention it. It only hit me that evening when she looked at her mom and dad and said, Paul Paul didn't get me any candy or popcorn. <laughs> so tomorrow I'm going to inundate her with all of that, and that's going to be so easy to do. In, in fact, uh, one of the days while... Now, the girls had been taking a, a nap. I went down to the beach and just hanging out and reading, and I didn't know where they were. I didn't know if they were back at the condominium. I didn't know if they were at the family pool. I, I didn't know where they were. But what a wonderful feeling it was when I came across the little crosswalk there, the little boardwalk, and stepped into the area near the pool to hear two little girls just paw, 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 paw. And I thought at that moment, what do you want? Do you want a bike, a car? You just, you just name it. You just name it. It is, it is yours. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful time. Really enjoyed it. And it's great to be with you tonight. And I was thinking during worship, there's so many things that I love about our church. I really do that I could just go on and on. But one of the things that I love about our church, and like you have, I've heard many, many, many of pastors' messages now over the years. We've been here almost 17 years now. Hard to believe that. But one of the things I love about our church is we walk away so often at the end of a message, and, and we feel encouraged. Uh, we feel challenged. We feel convicted. Sometimes we feel all three. And, but we never feel beat up. You know, I don't think church ought to be a place where you walk away and you just feel entirely beat up. I think encouragement is good. I think conviction is really good. I think challenge is good. And what I want to do tonight is I want to share with you a challenge right out of the Bible that maybe it would just give you something to think about. And to be quite honest with you, I've been thinking a lot about this for quite some time now. In fact, for the next several minutes, I want to talk to you about the possibility of initiating a revolution. And some of you are thinking, well, what in the world are you talking about? The, world, uh, the word revolution actually means this. It means a complete turn in action. It means, a revolution means to change something completely. It is an overthrow of something that has already been established. Now, the good news about this revolution that I'm going to talk to you about tonight for the next few minutes is that in this revolution, it is not birthed in rebellion. You're not going to get arrested for this one. You're not going to have to spend the rest of your life on the run as a fugitive. But there is a high probability that as you look at these scriptures and as you think about them and allow them to seep into your thinking, and I pray into your heart, that maybe if you would just assign yourself to that reality, that maybe it would change a life. Maybe there's somebody that you're going to come in contact with, that God is going to use you to change a life. And then maybe it will go on and it will be another life. Maybe God will use you to change a family or a workplace or a community. 
And what I want to talk to you about for the next few moments is this. I want to talk to you about how could you and I, being used by God, start a compassion kind of revolution? What is it that the Bible actually says about compassion? Because I've, I've been thinking a lot about this for some time now. I've just started digging in and just seeing again and again. What does the Bible say about compassion? What is our, our fundamental responsibility as followers of Jesus to act in ways that are compassionate? I mean, you cannot read through the Bible and not see again and again where it says that Jesus, expressions like this, that Jesus was moved with compassion. Or because Jesus felt this great emotion that he would reach out and he would touch people and he would heal people and he would raise people from the dead and he would totally transform lives. Why? Because Jesus was moved by compassion. So what does the Bible have to say about compassion? And I want to take you through just sort of a sequential step-by-step, you know, sort of lower-level compassion, I might would say, that the Bible refers to. And then how does that become increasingly effective? So let's begin with a word, and I want to talk to you, first of all, using this Bible expression, compassion, about those times in our life when we're going to be moved, and we're moved by a need. There's other things that will move us, but, but at sort of the lower level of compassion, it is that we are moved by a need, and the word is this. It's one of the words that the, one of the, words the Bible uses to describe compassion, and here's the word. You're going to see it on the screen. It is the word hamal, hamal. It is actually, when you think about this word, hamal, it is the starting block for compassion. When used in the scriptures, it is translated to spare someone or to have pity on someone, hamal, to feel pity for somebody. And it's, it doesn't really necessarily go much beyond that, but that's the starting point of it. It is sort of entry level of compassion that you, quite honestly, you don't even have to be a Christian to operate in this arena of compassion, hamal. I want to show you just one example. There's many in the Bibles, but this particular one is, is found in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, and I want you to look at it. Many of you will remember the story. It's this hamal expression of compassion. It says, then the daughter of the king of Egypt, she came to the river to take a bath, and her servant girls were walking beside the river. When she saw the basket in the tall grass, she sent her slave girl to get it. Look at the next part of this. The king's daughter opened the basket and saw the baby boy. And we know, of course, that that is Moses. He was crying, so she felt sorry. She felt, the word here would be hamal. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. Now, what do we know about Pharaoh's daughter? There's no indication whatsoever in the Bible that she was a Christian at all. In fact, what we do know about Pharaoh's daughter is that she was raised in the home of a pagan, centralized in a pagan empire. And so there's no biblical evidence whatsoever that she is a follower of Jesus. Yet when she found the baby, when she saw little baby Moses crying, she realized his hopeless situation, and she was moved by a need. And so she looked at this little guy that had no assistance whatsoever, and she said, this is what I'll do. And we know the story and how it all played out. I will take him into my home, and I will raise him as my own son. See, a person does not have to be a follower of Jesus to do these sort of hamal expressions of compassion. You don't have to be a Christian. Take uh, Salvation Army, for example, which is an incredible organization that helps people. And there's all kinds of people that support, and that's one of many Salvation Army because they see what they're doing to help families, to help families that are in need, to help families that are in crises, those who are homeless and kids, and, and, and we see that. But you don't, you don't have to be a, a Christian to be motivated, that sort of hamal expression of compassion. You, you just just got to care. You got to be moved by a need. 
I can remember a few years ago, I think, because it's been a little time now, I think I had left the office one day going to lunch. I think I was headed to lunch. And I can remember I wasn't too far from here, and I came upon a scene, and it was a very, very minor accident, but it was an accident nonetheless, a little fender bender. It seemed to be, from what I recall, a, like a one-car fender bender, and, and I could tell it was an older lady who uh, was standing on the outside of her car, and uh, again, nobody was hurt, nobody was in trouble, uh, but you could just see a little bit in her eyes, like some concern, some consternation, like, okay, what am I going to do? And I just can remember, I do remember this part of the day was just incredibly busy, lots of meetings, lots going on, and I'm just going to run out for a quick bite, run back, and then I, I, I drive by, and I see her, and we sort of make brief eye contact, and I just think, have you ever done this? Probably you're a lot more spiritual than I am. Have you ever done anything like this? I don't have time to help today. This is, this is a bad day to be compassionate. And I can remember just thinking, oh, man, and I'm, I'm just wrestling on the inside, and I'm like, oh, I, I know, but I've got uh, uh, this lady, I'm sure, but I've got so much, and I've got to be back for this, and I'm, I'm just wrestling. Up, and then I'm like, you know, I know I'm not going to be comfortable until I turn around, and I'm like, I won't be able to go the rest of the day just living with this reality that I didn't help this lady when she needed. And so I turned my car around, I pulled up beside her, and here's the first thing she said, thank you, Pastor Jeff, for turning around. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I don't even want to think about it. Come back, hey, Pastor Jeff, if he ever speaks on compassion, don't listen to it. I was so glad that I turned around. Hamal, it's sort of that entry-level compassion. But then compassion is elevated. And now it's not just being, and this is what the Bible representation of this is. Now you're not just moved by a need, you're actually moved by love. And here's our next word. Take a look at it here on the screen. Is, is it the word rahom? And it's different from the first word, word that we looked at, hamal. It's totally different. This much more engages the heart of a person because it is more than just feeling pity. It is actually an expression of love. This word actually means to love deeply, and the implication of it is this. Listen now, that the love is so deep that it now moves me. It's not just a feeling, but I feel love for this person that is in need, and so it compels me to act with mercy. And there are many expressions of this higher level of compassion found throughout the Bible in places like Psalm 103, 13 and 14. It's not on the screen, but just listen to the words. The psalmist said, as a father has compassion, Rahom, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust. Skipping down just a little bit in the psalm, Psalm 116.5, here's an, another expression of that Rahom kind of compassion. And, and if you'll read this next one with me, let's all read it together. Here we go. The Lord is gracious and righteous our God is full of compassion. Our God is full of love. God cares. People matter to him. Look at these next couple of verses. This is out of the, this is, is out of the Old Testament, Isaiah. Many of you are familiar with this. 
What a picture of compassion it is to just see that God says, hey, if a mother cares about her child, how much more do I care? And it reads like this, can a woman forget her nursing child? Will she have no compassion on the child from her womb? And, and then it's like God is saying, no, not a chance, not any reasonable, not even nor, any normal thinking mother would not even give consideration to ignoring their child. And then God adds, although mothers may forget, and God says, here's what I want you to know. I'm never going to forget about you. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are always in my presence. What is God saying? God says, I'm always thinking about you. You're always in my vision. When I see you, I feel love for you. I feel compassion for you. I, I care about you. It is that Rahom kind of compassion. Zechariah chapter 7 speaks of acting with compassion, of acting with love and mercy toward widows and the fatherless and the poor. But then there's another expression, and it, it just keeps like stepping up, and it accelerates. And, and all of us have been at that point where we've just we felt moved by a need, that Hamal kind of compassion. We, we felt moved by a need, and so we acted. And we couldn't even say it was a spiritual moment. We just, you know, because we're good, decent, wonderful, hopefully people who care about people, we were moved by a need. But then we've had those times where we're just like moved by love, and it goes beyond just pity. But this takes it to a whole nother level. In this case, compassion is raised to a whole nother level. And so what I've done is I've already said the first two words, so I need you to say the next one. Here it is. You can just say this one on your own. Go ahead. Help me out. It's an actual word. I'm from Georgia, therefore I can't say that word. I have tried to say it numerous times, and every time I do, it sounds like a skin condition, like you need a prescription strength lotion or cream to treat it. So I'm, I'm not even going to attempt it. But this word is used in the Bible to speak of Jesus having compassion for someone in need. And the magnitude of it is so strong. And it goes beyond just having pity. And it's taken further down the road than Rahom kind of compassion. It is born out of deep love, but a deep love that moves somebody to do something about someone's situation. It is Jesus' own assignment from God his Father acting in such a way that it becomes the turning point in someone else's life. Let me show you a few examples of this one. Matthew 9, 36, you see it on the screen. It said that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It is the most heightened, friends, it is the most heightened expression of compassion that you can find in the Bible. And any time that we read in the Bible that Jesus was moved with this compassion, it often resulted in this loving compassion changing the life of someone or many people, and it would set them on an entirely new course. Their needs moved him. He took action. Their life was forever transformed. For example, look at this verse up on the screen. Matthew 14, 14 says this, and Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them. But then look at what he does with what he feels. And it says, and he healed their sick. 
I mean, how many of you know Jesus didn't have to heal the sick? He could have just said, I'm in a hurry. I've got a lot going on. I'm a, I'm a busy person. I've got a, a mandate and a mission to accomplish, and I don't, I don't have time to slow down. But he felt compassion, but it took him beyond just a feeling. It took him just beyond an emotion. He was more than just moved by need. It was more than just feeling pity. He said, you know what? I care so deeply about these people. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to intervene into their life. I'm going to intervene into their circumstances, and I am going to heal their bodies. Matthew 20, 29 through 34, it's not on the screen, but let me just read another example. There's so many of these. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. You're familiar with this story. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder. It's like, hey, you know, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped, and he called them, and he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered. Now, don't you just love their simple response? We want to see. We want our sight. Listen to this next portion. You ready? Jesus had compassion on them, but he does more than that. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. How many of you know if you've spent an entire lifetime blind, never been able to see, and all of a sudden in a split second you can see? How many of you know that's going to transform your life? And it was more than just feeling pity. It was more than just saying, I, I, I love my creation. It's, it's Jesus, God in the flesh, saying, I, I love them so much, and I care about them so much. I see the dire circumstances of their life, and I know that they want to see, and I want them to see. And from that point forward, their life was completely changed. So let me give you a compassion equation here for a moment. Pity plus love plus action. I think, equals a revolution. Well, how do you get in on a revolution like this? And I want to just take a moment, and I don't want to talk about this because I think we can personalize it. You know, I can understand it theoretically. I can understand it theologically. I can, you know, I can, I can look at, you know, these elevations, uh, incremental elevations of compassion found throughout the Bible. But, you know, really, what does it mean? Not much unless I take it or you take it and we make it applicable for our lives. So what do we do about it? I mean, really, are we going to join up with a compassion revolution and just say, God, here's what I would like to do. I would like to spend from this day forward for the rest of my life doing something to help other people. And it all begins by realizing that it's not about me. And how many of you know we live in a culture that does not perpetuate that message? The message of our current culture is what? It is about me. I've got to look out for myself. If nobody else is going to look out for me, I must look after myself. I must protect myself. I must care for myself. And, and we just, buy, even as followers of Jesus, we buy into this notion, it is about me, but it's really not. So often our life revolves around our favorite person, our favorite person oftentimes being me. And so our attention and our focus is never far removed from the thoughts about our job, our health, our money, our car, our pain, happiness, house, wishes, toys, pleasures, dreams, desires, and comfort. Need I go on? But throughout the New Testament, we find phrases that try to jolt us out of that. When Jesus says things like this, I want you to love your neighbor as who? As yourself. 
Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Devote yourself. Give yourself. Deny yourself. Offer yourself. Humble yourself. Why does the Bible deal with that again and again and again? Because it's so easy. Isn't it true? I I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. It is so easy to think about me. In fact, can I tell you the person that is going to stand between you and I being a part of some kind of compassion revolution, it's not going to be other people, and it's really not even going to be the devil. You know who's going to stand between us and really these outrageous acts of compassion toward people in need? The person who will stand between us and that is is us. Someone has written this, 10 rules for getting rid of the blues. Have you ever had the blues? Here's 10 rules for getting rid of it. Go and do something for somebody else and then repeat it nine times. Just do it again and again and again. But it's not easy to look beyond ourselves. It's easy to just focus on, on me. I shared this morning at, uh, at Lakeside, and I just, even this afternoon, just grabbed it. It's, it's one of my favorite stories. If you've ever heard me give messages over the last few years, at some point you have heard me share this story because it is one of my most favorite stories because it is a reminder to me that if we do not humble ourselves, how many of you know circumstances will often humble us? Stories told about Mayor Daly in Chicago, uh, the older Mayor Daly, not the most recent one. And and he was always known for making re- remarks that just, he stumbled through his remarks, through his speeches, because here's why he stumbled, because Mayor Daly, the older Mayor Daly, always had somebody else write the speech, and he would never, and this is unthinkable to me, but he would never read the speech until he got up to deliver it. Now, how many of you have ever taught a class or a small group, or if you've ever shared in some setting, how would you, I mean, that just freaks me out, the very thought of that. After I prepared this message, you won't believe how many times I read through it just to make sure it was impounded in, into my, my brain. But Mayor Daly's notion was he wasn't even going to look at it. He didn't write it, and he had no intention of even looking at it till he stood up to speak. At one time, he had a speechwriter on his staff that came into his office one day and said, I need a raise. Mayor Daly, I need a raise. I've been working for you for many years. I work really hard. I do good work. I want a raise. In fact, I, it's more than I want a raise. I need a raise. And Daly didn't take well to that kind of thing. He said, I'm not going to give you a raise. He looked at this young speechwriter. He said, it ought to be enough for you that you work for me, a great American hero. That's a good boss, isn't it? I love what happens next. Sometime later, Daly's on his way to give a speech, and again, his style was he'd just stand up and deliver it. Never seen it. And so it was true on this day, and it just happened to be Veterans Day. And he's speaking to a large veterans group. It's getting national press coverage. He is thundering on quite eloquently about his concern for the veterans of this country. He said, a lot of people have forgotten you, but I haven't. I remember what you've given. I believe that you need to be taken care of. So I am outlining, he's just reading the speech for the very first time. So I'm outlining today a 17-point proposal for our country, our state, and our cities to take care of our veterans. And at at this point, everybody's leaning in. They all want to know what Daly's about to say. He's kind of curious himself what he's about to say. And he flips the page over, and all it says on the next page is this. You're on your own now, you great American hero. Interesting how those next 17 points were shared. But it's not about you, and it's not about me. And it's about enlarging our heart. 
You see, I've got to recognize needs. I've got to have my eyes open. How many of you have ever had this experience? You never recognized a car like the one you had until you bought the one that you had. Then it seemed like 10,000 other people in the community was driving the same car that you had. And you didn't even know until you... And I think it's sort of that way with needs. You never really see them until you open your eyes and you start looking around and you start reading and you start thinking and you start opening yourself up to God. Not too long ago I read this and I was just awestruck. I'm still, even as I say it to you, that about every 15 seconds a child dies as a result of waterborne disease which could easily be prevented. When you think about the needs all over the world, and there's just simple little things that, that we can do, I, I, and I mentioned this at late side this morning, there's going to be so many kids in our own community that would, were it not for stuff the bus, silly as that sounds, would show up on the first day of school without any school supplies at all. And just the reality of the utter embarrassment that they would feel. That's why I'm proud of churches like ours who steps in and says, we're not going to allow that to happen. We're not going to allow that to happen. You see, God loves the whole world, doesn't he? God cares about the whole world. And he's just wanting you and I to just open our eyes. And, and, and if you're like me, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to continually pray that, that God would expand your heart, that, you would, that your heart would be enlarged. How many of you know that it's just sort of symptomatic that if we're not careful, our heart over time seems to shrink a little bit. It does not enlarge naturally. Something that we've got to pray about and ask God to help us with. I can remember, you know, some, some time ago, it's, it's no secret, I've, I've eaten at Chick-fil-A a few times, only six days a week now. It's true, every morning. And uh, I can remember I was in there, and it was one of those rare times, and you may be different than I, but I, I never carry much cash. I just, I've always got my debit card, but I never carry a whole lot of cash, and still, uh, this, this day, I don't remember for which reason I went to an ATM. I got out some cash, and I had it in my wallet, obviously, to do something later that day. And so I'm in Chick-fil-A, and I'm, I'm finishing up my meal, and I look around, and I see this, this family come walking into Chick-fil-A, and it's a mom and dad, and like six incredibly well-behaved kids. They just have excellent manners, you can tell. Polite, and they sit down, and Dad brings over the tray, and then I watch. And I couldn't help it. I'm just sort of fixated on this as Dad takes the little tray of food, and he, he begins to pass it out. He begins to divide it up and pass it around the table. And it was another one of those occasions, much like when I make eye contact with a lady, I thought, I don't really have time to do anything. On this occasion, I'm, I'm talking myself out. I'm like, you know, I, if I just walk up, you know, it's going to be offensive to the dad, and he's going to think, you know, and I'm, have you ever had these conversations in your own brain? Have you ever done this? And like, if I, you know, offer some money or give some money, the dad's going to feel like I'm insulting his ability to provide. And so I'm like talking myself out of something that I know that God is asking me to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling again, and I'm just looking, and I'm like, and it's like God is saying to me, why do you think you have cash today? Why do you think you have cash? And my response is, I thought it was for this, but obviously not God. Obviously, it's for something else. And I'm just wrestling. And I kid you not, I'll never forget this. One of the little girls, there's about six kids. 
One of the, and, and I've just got this wrestling going on. I'm sitting there in the booth, and I'm just saying, do I? And I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to embarrass. I, you know, what do I do about it? I feel compelled to act with compassion, but I don't even know how this is going to play out. And so do I do it or not? I kid you not, as I'm thinking that thought, one of those children turned, looked immediately in my direction. And I'm not sitting in a very conspicuous place. It's like she turns her little eyes and looks directly in my eyes and smiles as if to say, you know what God is telling you to do. (laughs) You know it. And I'm like, all right, God, you've got my attention. Enlarge my heart. We see a need. We ask God to expand our heart because our heart has this natural tendency to want to shrink. And then we've got to act. We've got to do something. You see, if you are serious about being a part of a compassion revolution, then God will most assuredly set opportunities before you. And when he does, take action. And you may wrestle. I've been there. I've been there before. I'll be there many times. And you may wrestle initially, but just as that little girl, I knew what God was saying to me, but God was like confirming to me through her what he wanted me to do. And there's going to be these spontaneous acts that just come out of the blue and you didn't even anticipate it. And you don't even know why you have cash in your wallet or purse or you don't even know why you, but spontaneously God brings something to your attention. He said, this is an opportunity for you to be a part of the compassion revolution. And then there's intentional ways. I think about the things that are ahead of us in the remaining part of this year, opportunities for one day to feed the world. And, and we're really, when you think about it, we're in the seventh month of the year. It's not going to be that long, believe it or not. I know it doesn't feel this way outside, but it won't be that long before we'll be talking about dove tree and angel tree and ringing the bell for Salvation Army. Maybe you could volunteer to work in a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter. Maybe God would speak to you about sponsoring a child in a third world country. Maybe God would talk to you about foster care or adoption. Maybe he'd talk to you about being a part of our next missions trip or visiting the elderly. There's this unshakable verse that Paul gives us, inspired of the Holy Spirit, of course, in Colossians 3.12. And this is one of those verses that maybe you'd want to commit to memory. And I want you to look at it with me. Colossians 3.12, you are the people of God. How many of you know that's, that's us? We're the people of God. He loved, you and cho- he loved you and chose you for his own. It's like God is saying, you know, I don't, I don't have to choose you. Nobody's forcing me to choose you, but because I love you, I choose you. And then it's like now we're adopted into God's family, and then God says, okay, now I love you. I've redeemed you. I've chosen you, but now there's something I want you to do. I want you to clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience. And I want you to look around, and when you do, you will see need. And when you see them, you must act. I don't want to just be moved by need, and I know you don't either. I don't want to just feel pity, sort of a home kind of compassion. I'd love to think that God would use you and that God would use me, that we would reach down, deep down, and prove to ourselves and to God and to the world that we really are what we claim to be, followers of the one who demonstrated the most ultimate act of compassion when he was nailed to a cross and died for the whole world. I want to close with a 
little bit of reading, read more than I typically would in a, in a message. But I want you to just hang in here with me at closing story, and then we're going to pray. I read this book some time ago, and, and it was so impactful, and here's one of the parts of it that was impactful, and hang in here with me while I read just a little bit. It says, generosity was nothing short of the hallmark of the first century church. This writer's talking about the first century church. It was all they had. And it proved to be more influential than any amount of money or political sway. As time went on, several plagues ripped through the cities of that region. Each time the people would flee to the country to escape death. Whenever they did, the sick were left with no one to care for them. However, historians, many of which, by the way, were non-Christian historians, tell us that the Christians did not flee. Instead, they risked their own health to stay and meet the needs of the ones who could not help themselves. Many of these Christians died in the process, but they weren't afraid of death. As they nursed the sick back to hell, the word of their generosity spread like wildfire. The entire perspective of the Christians stood in stark contrast to the pagans around them. The pagan priests were first to leave town in, in those situations. They, they were some of the wealthiest people around, and they had a lot to lose, not to mention the fact that they were also afraid of dying. So they thought nothing of leaving their sick loved ones behind in order to save themselves. Meanwhile, the Christians would even take care of the pagans. And as the pagans' health returned, they often abandoned their idolatrous ways and turned to Christianity. Not because of theology, not because of a miracle, but because of the generosity and compassion of Christians in their communities, first century church. One such story that survived antiquity records the saga of a man named Pachamias. He was 20 years old when the Romans took over the town where he lived. Pachamias' parents were both pagans, and he considered that to be his lot in life as well. But when the pagans came to town, the course of his life was changed forever. Because when the Roman Empire took over a community, they collected all the young men and drafted them into the Roman army. And because the Roman generals knew these young men would escape if possible, they locked them in prison until they could be carted off and trained to serve. While Pachamias was in prison, a famine ravaged that area. Everyone in the prison began to starve. But as Pachamias himself documents, strangers began to show up at night and slip food between the bars. Night after night, these mysterious people came back, and each time they did, the prisoners inhaled the morsels without asking questions. As a result, Pachamias and his friends survived this horrible famine. When it was over, Pachamias began to ask questions. Who were these people? Where did they come from? And most of all, why in the world are they feeding us? The answer bewildered him. The strangers were members of the group known as Christians. Some referred to them as Galileans or followers of the way. When Pachamias completed his obligation to the Roman infantry, he immediately sought out the Christians. From them, he, from them he learned about Jesus, the resurrection, and the people who know, now carried out the legacy of Jesus. Pachamias himself became a Christian and eventually was a great leader in the early church. He was later dubbed St. Pachamias in recognition of his devotion to the movement. And it was all because of the extraordinary generosity that had captured his own heart. You see, everywhere Christians went, they were known for their generosity. And their influence began to reshape the entire Roman Empire. Eventually, Emperor Julian made a push to bring back paganism. But it was the generosity of Christians that foiled his efforts. In fact, he wrote, the impious Galileans, talking about the followers of Jesus, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. So basically, he was never able to galvanize support because of the Christians who continued to do more for the pagans than the pagan leaders did for the pagans. Not because they'd get something in return, but because that's what God's love is all about. This version of no strings attached generosity and compassion was so extraordinarily powerful that it was one of the primary reasons, many believe, many scholars believe, 
that Christianity survived the first century and pushed into the second and the third. And now we're here on a Sunday night, July the 16th. And I think maybe Jesus would be looking at us and saying, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to perpetuate it? Are you going to keep it moving? Are you going to be a part of a compassion revolution? Is your life going to center around you? Is that really how you want to spend the rest of your days, just fixated on you? Or will you look around and will you see the needs of a hurting, broken, messed up, dark world? And will you feel pity? But will you do more than feel pity? Will you love? Will you do something that will change a life, that could change another life, that could change a family? that could change a community, that could change a nation. I want to be a part of something like that. Don't you? Can we give Jesus a hand clap of praise tonight? Thank you, Lord. Stand with me, everybody. Would you just bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? You can do this. We can do it in his name and in his power and in his authority. As we bow our heads and close our eyes tonight, just think about that. Pity plus love plus action. It's a revolution. So can we just pray together tonight? Your own way, your own heart, your own mind. God, help us to lose ourselves. We know the idea of the world. We're bombarded by it every single day. It's about you. Take care of you. It's not the way that you took Jesus. It's not the way that you want your followers to take. You want us to have eyes of compassion, just like you did. You don't want us to see needs. So help us to lose ourselves. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to give ourselves. God, I pray for all of my church family tonight. The prayer that I've been praying in my own life these days. God, enlarge my heart. Enlarge my heart. Help me to see with your eyes. Help me to be moved with compassion. Help me to change a life. God, help us to take action. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're toward the end of our service now. In fact, we'll be done here in four or five minutes, but we're going to open up the altars because there are so many of you that you probably need a healing touch in your own body. Maybe you just want to be anointed with oil. I I believe, James, when he said, is any among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith. Maybe you're going through a struggle. Maybe you're going through a tough time. I shared with our Lakeside family this morning, and I'll just share this briefly. I I was sitting at the beach one day this week, and I was sitting in my favorite chair. It's a red chair, although it does not have a Georgia logo on it anywhere, and I'm disappointed with that, but it just doesn't. And I was sitting there, and I actually was thinking, this time last year, I was, I I wasn't saying it to a whole lot of people, but I was feeling really, really low, because this company that I used to like before they transferred my son to Illinois, who took my grandbabies, I so love these grandbabies, and they lived 2.5 miles away from me at the time, And I knew that as soon as we came back from summer vacation, they were getting on a plane and moving to Illinois. I was feeling really low. I didn't want anybody to know. September rolled around. 
And my dad, 72 years of age, had been sick, but not sick to death. At least that's what we thought. And dad died. And then January, mom at the age of 70, she passed away January this year. So I can remember this particular afternoon, this week, sitting at the beach, and I just said, God, I'd really like for this next year to be a lot better than this past year has been. I don't want to repeat those 12 months again. And that was me then. But I wonder what you're struggling with now. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you've got pain. Maybe there's something going on in your life, and you don't even want anybody to know about it. But you just humble yourself tonight. You just come and say, I'm hurting. How many of you know it's okay to admit that we're hurting? If you can't admit that you're hurting, you're in pain in church, pray tell where you admit it. But you just have somebody pray for you, anoint you with all. Maybe you'd come down and you'd just say, here's what I need. I'm just so, and it, it's a humbling thing, but to just say, I so often think about me, but I know that I need to think about others. And I want to extend compassion. We're going to open the altars. Whatever your need is, come. We're going to sing a song or two, and then we're going to be gone. I'll come back in just a moment and pray the benediction.